name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So today we'll start covering from verse 27, John 6, verse 27. But we'll just read from the previous verse, then go from there. So let's read from 26, and then we'll go till 29. All right. Jesus answered him and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. All right. So, we know that they were coming for the wrong reasons, right? They wanted to just uh, have their stomachs filled, right? Although, you know, that's important, you know, physical food is important. But they were coming to Christ for what He gives them, not for who Christ is. Not for Him as a person, not for Himself. They were coming to him basically uh, like a genie, right? Or like a vending machine. Not because they're in love with him as a person. Okay? So, something that St. Augustine says, Rarely is Jesus sought for his own sake only. Okay? And this is obviously applicable to this case here, where the people are not seeking him for his own sake. So, that's important for us to really think about in our own spiritual walk. If we're going to God um, just because we need this or we need that, or if we're going to God because of our love for Him as a person, not just because of what He gives me. Okay? And I think parents can probably relate to this a lot. Sometimes your children just come to you because Baba, I want this, or, or Mom, I want this, but you want them to just come and like spend time with you, or to just uh, thank you for what you give them, or to just talk with you, or just appreciate you as a person, not necessarily for what you give them. Okay, so he sees that they're coming to the to him for this specific reason, right? And although they're following him, they're going and you know putting in all this work to cross over the sea and to to follow him, which is really tedious, right? Like, they're supposed to be going to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it's a long journey already. Um, but they cross over as well, and they follow him, which is a lot of work, okay? So, he gives them some advice about work and labor. What does he say? Right? He tells them, you seek me, not because of the signs, but because of the loaves you ate. Right? Because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Right? He knows that they put in a lot of work to follow him and to seek this food. Okay? So he gives them some advice about work and labor. What does he say? Hmm. Look at verse 27. It's right in front of you. 
Okay, good. Don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. So, he's telling them to labor for the right type of food. Right? He's giving them some advice about how they should work, or more precisely, what they should work for. Right? He's trying to put the objective of their work in its proper context, like to prioritize the, the reason that they should work, which is for the right food. The reason they should work is for the food which endures to everlasting life. Okay? And so, what is the food that perishes and the food that endures to everlasting life? Okay. Perfect. Perfect. All the worldly stuff, uh, whatever feeds us, whatever entertains us, even physical food, you know, that perishes, right? Like if you make dinner and you leave it out, the next day it's going to spoil, right? It perishes. Not because it's evil, you know, not because entertainment is bad, um, but anything that satisfies our earthly needs has its limits, right? It doesn't endure forever. Like even whatever is good for us, like physical food, which is good for us, has its limits. But he's telling them there's a food that has no limits. It endures forever. Okay? And so that's the spiritual food. Okay? Spiritual food always supersedes the physical food. Okay? Even for us as physical creatures... Uh, we know that we need physical food. But when we have our spiritual food, we're truly content even when we're deprived of the physical needs. Okay, and we saw this even in Christ fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And some people say, well, that's Jesus. But he was truly a man. And we saw this in Moses as well, because he was united with God. And being filled with that grace, he had all his needs satisfied, even though he didn't have any physical food or, or water, he survived, right? Of course, that's like a different level of grace and, and, and holiness. But I'm sure like, we've tasted that in our life as well. Like whenever we have the spiritual food and we realize that I don't really need the physical food because I feel filled, I feel content. And I'll just share with you from my own personal life. A, a few days ago, some of you know I was in Canada for a retreat. And I flew out Thursday night. I got there at like midnight and... We drove to the place where the retreat was held. So it took us like a couple of hours. And by the time I fell asleep, it was like 3 in the morning. Next morning, I had to wake up for liturgy at 7 o'clock. So I tell myself, it's first night, it's okay. I'm going to sleep for like 3 hours, but I'll make up for it the next night and I'll really get some sleep. So wake up for liturgy and the whole day, like we're with the youth and the servants and... Uh, the talks and the fellowship and like a lot of people are asking questions and we have discussions and stuff and 
people want to go to confession and spiritual advice and the whole day was just jam-packed with fellowship and unity and fun and laughter, just a lot of spiritual food. And my plan was like, I'm going to go to bed at a good time to make up for what was deprived the, the, on the physical side, right? So I end up going to bed at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock that night, even later than the first night. But like, for some reason, I was just having such a good time. Like, I didn't want to go to bed. And I could have just left everybody. But I wasn't like making a sacrifice. Like, I was selfishly just enjoying being with everyone. So I stayed up late, even though like I was exhausted. Like, I really didn't feel it. And then the next night, the same exact thing. And wake up at an early time for liturgy as well. Until the very last night, where I'm like, okay, I really need to get some sleep. But... The very last night, I didn't sleep at all. Like, my flight was early in the morning, and then I just pulled an all-nighter because I was with a couple of friends. I was with one Anthony Paul and his brother, Abuna Theodore, which is the first time I met him. And just, like, sitting with them and, like, hearing stories about their experiences and in the service. And, like, I just didn't want to sleep. But, like, I felt filled. You know, I felt like I was totally satisfied, even though... I was deprived on the physical side, like I needed my body to rest, but my spirit felt alive and felt filled, rejuvenated, right? And I made up for a lot of sleep last night, so (laughs) that was important too. I mean, it's all that to say that when we really understand the value of spiritual food and what it does for our soul, what it does for our whole life, then we, we always pursue that above all else. We, we pursue that even at the expense of making physical sacrifices, even when we're pursuing that at the cost of lacking the physical food. Okay? And I'm sure all of you can relate to that in your own personal experiences in life as well. Okay, so he says, Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Again, it's because of the value of the food that endures to everlasting life. Because it's that valuable, because it will fill your needs, your priority should be for that food and for that food above all else. Okay? So he says, The Son of Man will give us this bread. But why is it that he'll give us this bread? He tells us the reason in the end of verse 27. Because what? Look at the end of verse 27. Because God, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Okay, what's that all about? Why is it that the Son of Man will give us this bread because God the Father has set a seal on Him? What do the two have to do with each other? What do you think? That's His will. Okay. It is definitely God's will to feed us. Okay. But what does it mean to even say that God the Father has set a seal on Him? 
Steve, you look like you're thinking. Like it, it's like, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I see something working. Okay. Christ himself is the food, and that is absolutely true. But what's that have to do with the seal? Like, he's telling us a reason that, like, what's that have to do with what you're saying? Like, because God the Father has set his seal on him, like, did, do you think that would even register with the people hearing this? What is a seal? Or at least in this context, what would that mean? The approval, okay, very good. It's almost like when an emperor signs a document, right? And he gets the, the signet ring and puts the seal, or like the stamp of his signature on it, okay? It's basically like an indication of completion or perfection. Or like I'm putting my name on it, I'm putting my approval on it, okay? So in a sense... This is what God gives us in Christ. What God gives us is perfected in Christ. Okay, because God has set His seal on Him. Because we see the approval of the Father evident in Christ. When He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? And throughout the entire life of Christ, He is... Revealing the will of God, honoring God, glorifying God, like drawing all men to God. Okay? St. Ambrose says, Christ is our seal, which is the mark of perfection and of love, because the Father, loving the Son, set his seal on him. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? Okay, so it's in the work of the Son, in the love that He pours out, that we see the approval and the perfection that the Father gives us, okay, the seal in Christ. All right, so He spoke to them about the work of God. Right? God's work or God's labor is to give you this food. And that prompts them to ask about how they could do that as well. Okay? They ask, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, so how does he answer them? To believe. Very simple. This is the work of God, that you may believe in Him whom He sent. Okay? To believe in Jesus, to believe in the one whom he sent, which is basically the one who is speaking to them. Right? He's basically pointing to himself as he's telling them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay? So it's interesting that he's telling them that the, the core of their work is faith, which clearly indicates that faith is not a passive process, right? It's not a passive quality. Because he's talking to them about work. He's talking about an activity, something you do. So what is it that you must do? It's to believe. So clearly it's not passive. 
because he's talking to them about work. So he's totally eliminating this concept of faith or belief as just a thought you have or just a word you say. Right? To just say, I believe, okay, and I can just do that while sitting back. No, to believe is something you go out and do. You work. Okay? You labor. All right? So that's what trusting and relying and depending on God is all about. It's something you do. If you believe, you are working in your belief. If you're relying, if you're depending, if you're trusting, those are expressed in activities, in your prayer, in your service, in the movements of your heart. Even internally, what you're doing is faithful. That peace that you have and the contentment that you have is a product of the internal work in your heart. Always gazing at God, always looking at God. That takes effort. Okay? When you're praying, you're directing your heart towards God. That's an active process, not passive. Okay? It's like when you're having a conversation with someone. Like people tell you to be attentive. You don't just listen and let the words go in one ear and out the other. Even when you're listening, the right way to listen is called what? Active listening. Okay? It's something you do. Right? You're not just sitting there passively. Okay? Alright, any comments or questions about that? Alright. So, let's go to the next section. We'll read from 30 to 33. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. All right. So, not only are they asking for a sign, but what are they actually doing? Say that again. Okay, they're alluding to the manna. And by doing that, they're making a more specific request. Like, they're, they're demanding a specific way for... Christ to prove himself. Okay? So they're not just asking for a sign, but like you have to prove yourself this way. <laughs> Which is like the worst type of doubt. Right? Because it's not sufficient for him to just prove himself, but he has to prove himself on their term. Right? So clearly they have no faith. Right? And like it looks bad when we see it from our perspective, but like a lot of times God is proving Himself in our life and He's revealing His love and His care for us, but we're like, no, but you have to show me in this way. <laughs> like you have to tell me that you're with me and that you're going to take care of this problem or situation or issue that I have in this way. 
Right, so we're making demands according to our terms. Like basically, we set the terms and conditions for God to reveal Himself, right? And and it's absurd whenever we see it from our perspective. But you know, um, we do it in our own life, so we have to think about that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and like... It's hard to overcome. Yeah, and he did that several times too. So, which is interesting because God still worked with him, right? He says, okay, I'm going to show you this sign. And he's like, okay, he went out and the fleece was wet, the ground was dry. He's like, okay, but I need to do it in the exact opposite way now. <laughs> like as if the first time wasn't enough. Um, but... Gideon didn't really know God. Like, he never had a clear sign, right? These people just saw Christ multiply five loaves and two fish into enough food to feed 5,000 men and the women and the children, right? And so, I I guess that just, uh, that tells us that God's more than willing to prove himself to us, to show us the signs that we need to fuel our faith. Right? But we have to ask ourselves if the signs are already in front of us and we just don't really care to open our eyes and, and see them and accept what God is doing, or our hearts are just hardened. And I think in this case, their hearts were hardened. And, and that's a part that really has no excuse. That's why he criticizes them here, whereas people in the past were given signs. Even Thomas. They said, unless I see and put my hands in his wounds, and, like, I'm not going to believe unless I do that. And so Christ could have said, well, like, did you not see anything for the last three years? <laughs> What more do you want? But he still appeared to him and said, Here I am. Go ahead and put your hands in my wounds. And I think it's because Thomas and the people in the Old Testament, like Gideon and the prophets, were asking with a spirit of humility, and they were genuinely trying to believe and and to increase their faith. And so... uh, we do have that part in our nature that, that we have to struggle with, those doubts. Um, but it's not in our nature to be hard-hearted. Um, and that's where God really draws the line with us, whenever we're just prideful. Um, any other comments or questions about that? Okay, so before even addressing the request to, uh, to give them proof, he corrects their understanding of what happened in the Old Testament. Right? Because they tell him that, you know, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written, he gave bread from heaven to eat. And then they're alluding to what Moses did. 
But he's telling them, wait, before we even talk about the sign that you're asking about, let's get one thing straight. <laughs> it wasn't Moses, right? That bread didn't come from Moses. The manna didn't come from Moses. So he said to them, Moses, surely he said to you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. But who? My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Okay? So he's gradually leading them into the truth. Right? Because he's going to say some challenging statements. Right? You know where this whole passage goes. How he is the bread of life, and unless they eat his body and drink his blood, they have no life. And so he's going to get there, but you know, he's starting out gently. <laughs> he's building into it. Okay? So St. John Chrysostom says, in mentioning Moses, Jesus doesn't compare himself with him. For the Jews didn't as yet prefer him to Moses, of whom they still had a higher opinion. And so they recognized that Moses was a prophet, a great prophet, but they knew that God was higher than Moses, right? Nobody had a problem coming to terms with that, right? As for this Jesus guy, they really didn't equate him with Moses, let alone a higher figure, okay? So what Christ does here is to at least appeal to what they already agree upon, the fact that the Father is the real source, the one who really provides, not Moses. Okay, so St. John Jacobson continues to say, so that after saying Moses did not give, he doesn't say I give, but says that the Father and not Moses gives. He's telling them, look, my Father is the one who gave you this bread. So everyone who's hearing this will probably nod and say, okay, we can agree with that. Hmm. Yes, but they never addressed him as father. Yeah, but no one would call him like my father or like a father to me. Uh, and that's why when he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, like uh, our Father who art in heaven, it was the first prayer to address God as my father. Yeah, and that's already challenging for them, but at least that's digestible. Like, they will agree that it's God who provides, right? It's God who gives life, because He's going to tell them that He is the one who gives life, right? He is the bread of life itself, right? So He's kind of like progressing slowly, into that. Okay? So, in verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What's he really implying here? Hmm. He's definitely talking about himself. 
But before making it like directly clear that I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven, he just wants to communicate like the source of this bread, right? Like it comes from heaven, okay? The bread of life is he who comes down from heaven, okay? So he's telling them that the bread is the bread that comes down from heaven. It's not what you have here on earth. The real bread is not what you make from the grain that grows out in the fields. Right? The real bread is the bread that comes down from heaven. And then he tells them that this bread that comes down from heaven is a person. It's not an actual object. Right? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Okay? So now he's like taking a step deeper. Okay? This bread is not like what you eat here physically. It's not what you make from the, the crops that grow in your fields. But it's what comes down from heaven. So the source is heaven. And this bread is a person. Is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay? So it's a living type of bread. It's a bread that gives life. Okay, and this is what's going to spark some more questions, right? And you should already be thinking about some other conversations that compare to this, or at least relate to how this conversation is going, right? You're shaking your head. The living water with the Samaritan woman. And another one right before that. It's similar to the conversation he has with Nicodemus, right? Where, like, he's slowly progressing from one truth to, like, the deeper layer. And uh, it challenges the, the one hearing to, like, further inquire, to ask, okay, like, how do I do this? Like, how am I born again, right? And the Samaritan, how do I get this living water? And then you'll see in this very next verse, they're going to ask, give us this bread. Okay? So, let's actually go straight to that. We'll read from 34 to 40. Okay? So, a big chunk in this next section. Then he said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. All right, so there's a lot there, right? Just from that first verse that we read in this little section, they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. What are they really requesting? 
Physical bread, right? And again, you know, it's not a stupid request because physical bread is very important, right? But they're totally missing what this is all about. Yes, 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 exactly. And they, they're just thinking carnally. They're, their minds are not spiritual, so they can't process the spirituality of what he's telling them. Okay? And so he responds and tells them this long explanation. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So he goes on to explain how, you know, what he's talking to them is not what they think. It's not about physical bread. It's about me. Okay, so now the conversation is getting serious. Okay, before he was telling them about how the, the real bread is the bread that comes from heaven. They're like, okay, yeah, the men that came from heaven. Okay, and he's telling them it's not just a physical object. This is a person, he who comes down from heaven. And now he's making it explicit. He's making it direct. He's making it very clear. I am the bread of life. And this is the first complete I am statement. Okay? Earlier, whenever he arrived at the boat, he says, I am. And then he goes on to say, do not be afraid. Right? So that's technically the first I am phrase, but there's nothing to follow with it. Right? This is the first I am title. Okay? But it's really in conjunction with each other because he introduces himself to the disciples as the I am. Right? The one who spoke to Moses. The one who transcends all creation. Okay? Right? So what he's telling them is that he is above all of creation. And now he's like, that one who just spoke to them and identified as the, the ego Amy, the I am, the one who transcends all creation, is the one who came down from heaven, is the one who identifies as the bread of life. Okay, so you see how it's all related. It's all in the same passage. Okay? So Tertullian says, For Christ is our bread because Christ is life, and bread is life. I am, he says, the bread of life. And a little above, he says, the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. Then we find, too, that his body is regarded as bread. This is my body. And so, in petitioning for daily bread, we ask for eternality in Christ and unity with his body. That's why whenever we pray, give us today our daily bread, we pray for that. Right? We're not praying for just any food. Right? We're praying for bread. Not the physical bread. Right? And that's why that word daily is the super essential or it's the supernatural bread. Like it doesn't actually mean daily in the Greek. So there's like a little mistranslation there. Because what we're praying for, give us 
today the supernatural bread. Give us today the bread that transcends nature. Right? Now, there's nothing in the Lord's Prayer about our physical needs or any temporary requests. It's about the spiritual needs. It's about praying for eternal life. Okay? So, that's what we're praying for. And he identifies as bread, as that specific food out of any other food because that is the, the central food that basically constitutes the, the sustenance of life. Like, even whenever we say, I'm, I'm working to put bread on the table, like that sort of expression... It implies that I'm not just like putting physical loaves of bread, but I'm putting food on the table, right? I'm working to put bread on the table. That means so much more than just I'm working to put pita bread or aish fino, whatever, <laughs> right? It's, it's to say I'm working to give you all that you eat, all that you need for your sustenance, okay? So that's why he chooses bread in this specific dialogue, okay? Just as Christ chooses water in a dialogue with the Samaritan woman. Okay, we know that water is a source of life and uh, it, it constitutes all that we need to satisfy our needs and to quench our thirst. And bread here is basically what we identify as food in its entirety, like what feeds us is basically reduced to that word, bread. Okay? Comments or questions about that? Okay, I am the bread of life. Okay? He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet do not believe. So, again, he's calling them out. Like, You've seen me give you food. You've seen the five loaves and the two fish multiply. And yet you don't believe. Yet your mind is still at the earthly level. Okay? You're still asking for physical food. Right? You're not really seeking what matters in life. You're consumed in all of your materialistic needs. Um, and like this is what challenges us in our personal lives as well. Like, if all our prayers are about uh, paying the bills, if all our prayers are about our clothes, our food, our home, and our car troubles, and getting the mechanic to fix this at home, or whatever it may be, then... It's a reflection of what we really prioritize in life. It's a reflection of what really matters. And, and all of the saints talking about prayer are very clear about what should form the, the content of our prayers. And that's why, again, that Lord's Prayer is like the paradigmatic prayer that should reflect every other prayer in our entire life. And you won't find a single prayer that has like, any like, materialistic request. Okay? And so that's what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Like, your father knows that you need to eat and you need to drink. Do not pray for the food. Do not pray for what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink. So it's, it's actually a commandment not to pray for the earthly, not to pray for the materialistic. Not because those are insignificant, right? Like paying your bills is important. Having physical food is important. But the real reason is that when you're consumed in what really matters, you forget about what doesn't matter, right? That's why Christ says that unless you hate father and mother and brother and sister and even yourself, you cannot be my disciple. Why? Because that word hate is to say your father, your mother, your brother, he says, all of that should take second place. And when it is at such a distance that compared to your love, it's considered as hate. Right? Compared to your attention on God, you forget about the materialistic. You forget about the temporary needs. Okay, and, and as hard as that is, the more we just focus on the virtuous life, praying for um, our, our brothers and our sisters, praying for the salvation of the world, then we don't have time to pray for the materialistic needs. Okay? So that's what we should seek. Okay? I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Okay? So if we come to God with this honest intention, like I'm coming to you for the heavenly bread. The, the promise is, I will not cast you out. But if you're coming to God for the wrong reasons, and we saw this throughout the scriptures many times, people who come to Him for the wrong reasons, and they're always disappointed. Right? So we can ask ourselves if our disappointments come from our own inadequacies in the way that we approach God. Because a lot of times we approach God with certain expectations. Right? And then we're disappointed because we're coming to Him for the wrong reasons. But if we come to God for the right reasons, regardless of the weight of the burden we're carrying, we'll always find rest. We'll always find salvation and comfort. Right? We will not be cast out. He will accept us and console us. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Okay? So, this is not new. right? Christ has said this several times before. Like, my objective in the ministry I have and in the service that I'm doing is to do the will of God the Father. It's not about me. It's not about the attention that people give me. It's not about my own agenda. I have no agenda of my own. My whole life is all about doing the will of the Father. Right? And that's, that's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to live like Christ, to have no will of our own, like to have no agenda of our own. Like my will and all my desires are simply 
to live for the kingdom of God, right? To be a source of comfort for others, um, to give salvation to the world. And, and that's what the will of God is all about. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up to the last day. So the will of the Father is what? To give life. Right? To take us from death to life. That we gather everyone in the world. Right? So this is what our life should be all about. Okay? And this is the will who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life and will raise Him up at the last day. So, He's telling them that the source of eternal life, what will give them life, that what will take them from death to life, is to believe in the Son. That whoever sees the Son and believes in Him will have everlasting life. Okay? And so the will of the Father is for you to believe in the Son. Right? Because the Son was sent by the Father for us to believe in Him. And that's what this whole chapter is all about. Like the signs and these works are to give us faith. Right? And that should be our fuel to go out and to work. Once we have this faith, it's expressed in an active faith. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he even differentiates between seeing and believing. Like, seeing is just something that happens in front of you. Right? Of course, like, you have to open your eyes, but, like, seeing is just passive. Right? Um, as opposed to, like, gazing and, and, like, really fixating your eyes on something. But he says that everyone who sees the sun and believes... Right? So as to add to that whole process, like this is entirely active. Okay? And so there's also this, this, this beautiful theme here about how the will of God is for the salvation of everyone. Okay? Did you like, notice that in this little section? Like... This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. Okay? So there's clearly this theme of inclusivity in salvation. Right? He's not telling them about the, the, the good Jews, or even all Jews, but Jews, Gentiles, everyone who sees and believes. Okay? So, this is problematic for every Jew. Right? Like, 
this is not going to sit well for a good, righteous Jewish man. Because to them, this is totally in opposition to what they believe. Okay? This is a, a radical shift in what they understood about salvation. Okay? But salvation is for everyone. Any comments or questions there? All right. We'll just take the, the next couple of verses, and that'll probably conclude our Bible study for today. All right, so I'll read verse 41 and 42. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Okay, so is anyone surprised that this is how they respond? No, <laughs> no surprise. Okay, and it's really unfortunate that the New King James Version translates verse 41 in this way that they complained about him. But, like, if you notice in Verse 43, even though we're not going to cover that. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. Okay? That's the very same word that you see in verse 41. So it should read, The Jews then murmured about him. Okay, the Greek word here is egonzenon, which literally means murmured. Now, is that a big deal? It is, like murmuring, complaining is a problem, but is it really a big deal? Okay. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. But like, this is a serious trigger word for any Jew. Why? Yes. If you were to reduce all of their sins to like the most central sin, what God accused them of doing over and over and over again, it would be the sin of murmuring. So when a Jew hears this, they kind of like cringe because that was their main crime for all of their ancestors. Okay? Why? Because murmuring comes when you have no faith, when you're rebellious, when you're stubborn, when you're selfish, when you're too arrogant to, to have an honest conversation with God, so you just go and complain in the background. Right? Like, that sin is like the worst of the worst. And, and that was what God exposed in the Jewish nation. Okay? So the Jews murmured because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Okay? So clearly, St. John is drawing these parallels back to the wilderness, to Moses, to the manna, crossing the Red Sea from Egypt into the wilderness, 
everything here is alluding to God feeding his people the manna, which is now what Christ is doing by himself as the bread of life. Okay? Any comments or questions about that? I want to just mention a quick little reference. If you go back to Psalm 78, and it's 77 in the Masoretic, 78 in the Septuagint. Okay, I want to read from verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, the marvelous things he did in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan, he parted the sea and led them through. The water stood like a dam, and he led them with a cloud by day and all night by the light of a fire. He split the rock in the desert and gave them water to drink as a great deep. And he brought out water from the rock, and he brought it down like the waters of rivers. And they still continued to sin against him. They rebelled against the Most High in a place without water, and they tested God in their hearts by asking food for their souls. And they slandered God and said, Why is God unable to prepare a table in the desert? Since he struck the rock, and waters flowed, and brooks flooded, is he also unable to give us bread or to prepare a table for his people? Therefore the Lord heard and was enraged, and fire was kindled in Jacob, and wrath arose against Israel because they did not believe in God nor put their hope in his salvation. And he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained manna for them to eat and gave them the bread of heaven. Man ate the bread of angels. Okay, so this question, is he also unable to give us bread or to prepare a table for his people? And how God prepares a table in the desert. And you see the context of this passage. Where does it take place? As they cross the Sea of Galilee. In this desert. They're in a deserted place, right? So this is where God sets his table to give them the bread of angels, to give them the bread of life, to give them his own body and his flesh. Okay, so clearly he's alluding to like the fulfillment of what God did for them in the wilderness in the Old Testament. The manna was a type of that which is to come. Right? And so here we see the, the real bread that comes down from heaven. That's why if you notice a little bit earlier in verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Notice he just adds that little adjective in that verse. Because typically you would say, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gave you the bread from heaven. But the first one is about the manna. The second one is about who? Christ. So one is the bread, just, just bread. The second is what? 
the true bread. Okay, the one that gives life. And and so in the first case, you have a prophecy or a type that foreshadows what will come in Christ. All right, so it's a good place to stop. If you have any comments, questions, feel free to ask. All right. Okay, stand to pray.